And Spirit of the living God, we ask that you would descend upon our hearts and our minds now to help us understand the scripture that was given to us through the prophet Daniel, this incredible prayer that he prayed. May you work in our hearts in ways that will teach us how to live and how to pray as we seek to be lights shining in the midst of the darkness. Through Christ our Lord we pray, amen. Please be seated and take your Bibles and turn to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. As you're turning to Daniel 9, Daniel 9 is the passage that uh, Bruce, or was it Daniel, uh, who read to us this morning. As you're turning there, I want to say two things. Uh, First of all, thank you uh, to everyone who prayed for Andrea and I, and thank you for the many expressions of kindness and concern that came along the way. Um, Andrea is probably a week behind me in terms of getting her energy back, and so Lord willing, she'll be with us uh, next Sunday morning. I also wanted to just say um, how thrilled I was last Sunday morning when our treasurer, Ed Brink, uh, shared with us the good news that we brought our mortgage down to $1.4 million. Over $500,000 given last year without any major push uh, to make that happen. So God is to be praised for that. Wouldn't it be wonderful? I'm kind of speaking on a personal level now, but wouldn't it be wonderful if we could eliminate the mortgage by the end of this year, our 50th anniversary year? Wouldn't that be a wonderful goal to have? So let's uh, be praying. I hope you will join me in praying uh, that that will happen. Well, here we are now in Daniel chapter 9. We've been out of the book of Daniel now for some period of time since just before uh, Advent season began. And this morning we're going to be looking at the first part of Daniel 9. Daniel 9 is basically broken up into two parts. The first part is his prayer, which goes from verses 1 through 19. The second part, beginning at verse 23 to verse 27, is perhaps one of the most difficult Um, well, it is the most difficult portion of the book of Daniel, perhaps of all all of the Old Testament to understand and to interpret. I would go so far as to say it is probably the most controversial and hardest to interpret passage in the entire Bible. It deals with this, what we call the 70 weeks that Daniel speaks about. Actually, it's Gabriel who speaks about it because Gabriel comes in answer to Daniel's prayer. And so this prophetic word about these 70 weeks is given in answer to the prayer uh, that Daniel prays here in verses 1 through 19. And we will look at that um, very important passage uh, next Sunday morning. So we come now to one of the great prayers of, of, of God's word. If we, if we could rank prayers, this, this prayer is, is up there. I mean, it is up there near the top with Abraham's prayer for Sodom and Gomorrah. It's, it's up there at the top near David's prayer of confession. You remember his great prayer in Psalm 51 after he had sinned with Bathsheba and had taken Uriah's life against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. It, it's, this is a prayer that, that is ranked right up at the top with Solomon's prayer when he prays at the dedication of the temple that was built under his leader, leadership. Friends, this is right up there with the Lord's Prayer. Remember the Lord's Prayer, how he taught us to pray, saying, our Father who is in heaven, What I want you to understand before we even look at the prayer today is that the book of Daniel is is peppered with Daniel in prayer. Daniel 9 isn't unique to Daniel's life. It isn't sort of a one-off moment for this man of God. No, no, prayer is is what characterized Daniel's life. Prayer played a major role in his life. He was what we would call a man of prayer or a prayer warrior. Prayer was characteristic of his life. It wasn't something that happened spasmodically from time to time. It was something that was systematic, daily, a daily discipline in his life. The the impulses that he had to pray, the, the, the practice of prayer, the discipline of prayer in Daniel was not driven by some kind of occasional emotional impulse. 
but by a determined, willful commitment of his heart to seek the Lord. He was faithful in prayer, and so should it be for us as we live in this antagonistic age where we are surrounded by darkness at every turn. If we have any doubt about, about Daniel in prayer, we, we just have to go back to chapter 6. Do you remember chapter 6 where he's in the lion's den? Why was he there? He got thrown into the lion's den because he was unwilling to submit to the overreach of the, <coughs> of the Babylonian state. Three times a day it was his practice to, to go before God in prayer. And in spite of the coercive attempts of the government of that day to, to bring an end to the worship of the one true and living God, it says in Daniel 6, these are the exact words, Daniel still prayed. He still prayed. And it was because of his commitment to prayer and to worship the Lord that he was thrown into the lion's den. So as we think of Daniel, we, we, need, to, we need to understand this. Daniel was not kind of, some kind of a subversive character. He wasn't anti this or anti that. He was simply godly and obedient to his God. And prayer played a major role in his life. Prayer was the heart of his life. Now, before Advent season started, we, we, we finished our, our time in Daniel with a look at chapter 7 and chapter 8. And you'll remember that in chapter 7, Daniel is given a vision of the future. Now, it's the future from his vantage point. From our vantage point, it's history now, but it's, it's future for him. And, and he's given a vision of these kingdoms which rise and fall. They rise and they fall. Babylon and Persia and Greece and the Romans, they, they rise and they fall. And then in chapter 8, he's given a vision of, of, of the Greeks and coming and the Greek empire ruling the world under Alexander the Great. And then the, the shattering of the, um, the empire of Alexander into four different kingdoms and, and all of the turmoil that is going to go on in that part of the world in, in Israel during that period of time until finally there comes one out of this Greek world whom we know to be Antiochus Epiph, Epiph, Epiphanes, who was an evil, evil man, a notorious figure in the Word of God and in history itself. And what he will do, what he did to God's people, unspeakable things. Now, I say that because here at the beginning of chapter 9, Daniel's just seen these visions. And if you look at the end of chapter 8, verse 27, chapter 8, verse 27, I, Daniel, was exhausted and lay ill for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. This, what Daniel saw shook him to his very core. And here he is contemplating this crushing darkness that is to come. And what is Daniel going to do then to sustain himself in light of all that he's seen that is coming in the future? I think it's a, a very important question that we should each ask ourselves today. And that is, what would I do if I were Daniel and, and this is what I had seen and experienced? What would you and I do if, if God simply revealed to us that, 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 that more darkness is coming, that more trouble is on its way, that persecution is going to ramp up even more? You know, we, 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 we have what we call our coping strategies, the things that we do, <clears throat> the things that we employ when, when, when the pressure begins to build in our lives, these escape mechanisms that we have that we can, we can so easily fall back on when we're under great stress and anxiety overrules us. And for some of us, we, we just kind of want to go into the fantasy realm of, of watching movies and, and playing video games. For others, we find our, our comfort in just eating more. Or we want to escape by going south to the beach or north to some tranquil landscape on a lake. Or we go back to those addictive behaviors of our past that we think will comfort us and console us, but they only bring greater shame and shackle us with greater burden and heartache. What would I do if, if God spoke to me like he spoke to Daniel here? What would you do? 
Fortunately, Daniel didn't have the easily available, and I might I add, carnal options that are so available to us. Daniel was simply alone with God. And here in the opening verses of chapter 9, he was having what we might refer to today as a quiet time. That is a quiet time with God. Verse 1, in the first year of Darius who was made ruler over the, Bab- the Babylonians in the first year of his reign. Now, that, that tells us immediately when this happened. He's alone with God. He's having his quiet time with God. And by putting it into the first year of Darius, we understand this actually takes us back to chapter 6, that this event here actually occurs around the time that Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. So the, the opening line here in the first year of Darius is, is an important historical marker. It's important because Daniel now understood the significance of the time in which he was living, that there is a historic transition that is taking place. The overthrow of the Babylonians and the rising up of the Persians at this point in time was like a, a trigger in Daniel's mind. It triggered again, tri- triggered again his interest in the prophetic writings, in the, in the, in the very purpose and the duration of putting God's people into exile for 70 years. Daniel was at this point looking for an answer to to what is, I believe, this perennial cry that exists among all of us as God's people. How long, O Lord? This cry isn't anchored in the 6th century B.C. in Daniel's time. It is the same cry that came out of the hearts of God's people when they were subject to slavery in Egypt. And it's the same question that you and I ask over and over again. I mean, who among us does not wonder, how much longer? How much longer, Lord, will this reign of of unrighteousness and oppression and persecution and suffering continue until God finally puts an end to it? How long will this pandemic go on? How long will there be wars and rumors of wars? Have you been been listening to the news in the last couple of weeks of what's happening in our world in terms of the potential of war again in Europe? How long until all of these catastrophes like a volcanic explosion under the water off the coast of Togo, how long will these things go on? So we look now at Daniel's prayer. And we find some helpful things here because Daniel's prayer contains some needed elements that we need to have in our praying. Daniel's prayer gives us a needed example of the things that we need to be praying about, of the things that we must focus on, particularly when we feel that the darkness surrounds us. So this morning I'd like to share seven of these things from this passage. There's probably about 80 things, but I'll be kind to you today. Listen, I haven't preached in about six weeks, so I'm ready to go a long time this morning. First thing is this, prayer. From this passage we see it, prayer is essential. Prayer is essential when we are surrounded by the dark and an antagonistic world. Brothers and sisters in Jesus, let's just say it right out. We need God We need God. We need God today. We need God to sustain us. In this wicked world, we need God to keep us pure and undefiled. We need God to help us so that we're not carried away by the world's incessant spewing forth of propaganda seeking to squeeze us into its mold and to make us all like nice little Babylonians. Daniel knew this, and so he prayed. Daniel did not try to isolate himself from what was going on. He was, as we've already pointed out in this series, he was completely engaged in Babylonian life. But he knew he needed God to help him to let his light shine in Babylonian life. He needed God to give him the resources, the the mental and physical and emotional and spiritual resources that he needed to live and to live the gospel in an antagonistic age. Brothers and sisters in Jesus, it's, it's not our wisdom and our, and our strength that's going to get us through the trials we are presently facing. We need God, and prayer is the way in which we express our trust in God. Prayer is essential when we're surrounded by the dark because God is light. Jesus is the light of the world. 
Prayer is essential when we are walking in the valley of the shadow of death because we need to trust in the one who will comfort us with his rod and his staff, who will lead us beside still waters, who will restore our soul, who will promise us goodness and mercy all the days of our lives, even if those days are characterized by darkness. It's important to underscore how essential prayer is because we, we, will, we will often acknowledge this. I mean, no Christians against prayer, but, but we don't practice what we often acknowledge and we resort so many times to go back to those coping and escape mechanisms that I talked about before. Prayer is essential today. Number two, prayer must be rooted in Scripture. Look, look at what it says here in verse 2. In the first year of Darius's reign, I, Daniel, understood from the Scriptures. There it is. According to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer. So what's Daniel doing? Well, as I already said, he's having his quiet time. He's, he's alone with God. He's praying. But as he's praying, he's reading the scripture. And the scripture he's reading is of the prophet Jeremiah who, who lived just before Daniel lived. He's reading these writings, and there's probably two passages here that he, he, that he actually read from. We're gonna put them up on the screen. The first is Jeremiah 25. The whole country will become a desolate wasteland, and the nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. But when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation, the land of the Babylonians, for their guilt, declares the Lord, and will make it desolate forever. Jeremiah 25, but also Jeremiah 29. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my goal, or fulfill my, sorry, my good promise. It's a little small on the screen for me this morning. To bring you back to this place, that is back to the chosen, the chosen land, the promised land. So you see, Daniel's reading this. And as Daniel's reading it, you know, you know what he's doing? He's doing the math. He's doing the math. This doesn't take rocket science. 70 years until, until God's going to set his people free and, and deliver us. So Daniel's thinking, like, I went into captivity in the year 604 B.C. 19 years later, Jerusalem was destroyed I was away in captivity when that happened, but the, Bab the Babylonians finally wiped out the whole city and leveled the temple. And now he's thinking, this is the first year of Darius. First year of Darius is 538 BC. So from the, fall of, from the destruction of Jerusalem to the time of Darius is approximately 48 to 50 years. From the time that Daniel was taken into captivity, right now for him, it's about 67 years. And Daniel's 80 years old and he's doing the math and he realizes this is a historic moment because whether it's 50 years or 67 years, the, the fulfillment is not far off. Now here, here's something I want you to keep in mind. Daniel wasn't fixated with crossing every T and dotting every I of God's prophetic timetable. Daniel wasn't feeding his carnal obsession with becoming a prophecy interpretation pusher. He was simply having his quiet time because he knew that the, that the scriptures are a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. He knew that the scriptures revive the soul. The scriptures make wise the simple. The scriptures give joy to the heart. The law of the Lord gives light to the eyes. The law of the Lord is more precious than gold. It's, it's sweeter than honey that comes from the honeycomb. Daniel knows that by the word of God, he is warned. And in keeping the law of the Lord, there is great reward. See, he's reading Jeremiah, and when he reads this prophetic word, he is now stirred to pray. Scripture gave him hope, and that hope was translated into prayer. The Scripture reaffirmed his understanding and his faith 
that just as God was responsible in the first place for bringing Judah into captivity, so he would be the one to ultimately deliver his people and take them back to the land. Daniel's faith was confirmed that God was responsible for the beginning of the exile and God would be responsible for the end of it as well. And when he discovered all this and he did the math, he prayed for the very thing that the Bible assured him would happen. I, I just want to go down a rabbit trail for a moment here this morning because one of the overarching truths in the book of Daniel is the fact that God is sovereign over all things. It is the great truth that Daniel proclaims, and we've seen this in this series. It is the great and inescapable truth. God is sovereign over all things. He's sovereign over all that happens in history. Just a couple of weeks before Advent season, one one of our brothers here came to me, and he said, John, I really appreciate your emphasis on the sovereignty of God, but I got to tell you, I'm very, very concerned that that an overemphasis on the sovereignty of God can lead God's people into inaction. I mean, if God's in control and everything's going to happen as God has decreed it to happen, then what do I need to do? That was the comment that was made, and I understand it. It's interesting, isn't it, that, that so many conclude well, I mean, God set out his prophetic timetable and God's establishing what, you know, he's established what he's going to do and he's predetermined everything to happen. So, so why, do, why do I need to pray? Because God will do what he said he'd, he would do. Therefore, prayer doesn't really make a difference at all. And, and many Christ, Christians think that if, if God is sovereign and he's determined what's going to happen, then why should I pray? And, and friends, I've had those thoughts myself from time to time. You know, Daniel, Daniel could have frankly said the very same thing. Oh, I just read here in Jeremiah 25 and 29 that 70 years and everything's going to be good again. I don't need to do anything. I can, I can sit back now and let God work. But Daniel knew better. He knew much better. You see, the discovery of what God will do and the understanding of the purposes of God should not lead us to cop out. Instead, they should lead us to pray. They should lead us to action. Uh, Look look what it said in verse 16 in this prayer. Uh, He says, now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt, I'm in verse 15, with a mighty hand and who made for himself a name that endures to this day. We've sinned, we have done wrong. Verse 16, O Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and iniquities and the iniquities of our fathers have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Do you realize that what Daniel is doing in verse 16 is he's actually praying what he read the prophet Jeremiah said. This is exactly what Jeremiah said would happen. So why do we have to ask God to do what what he says he will already do? I think Alistair Begg gives a wonderful answer to this question when Alistair Begg said, somehow in the economy of God, the prayers of God's people are interwoven into the unfolding of God's purpose. That's beautiful. Amen to that. My God shall supply all your need according to your glorious riches in Christ Jesus, the Bible says. So what, we just sit back? No, we're to pray for our daily bread. We're given a vision in Revelation 7 at the end of time and a great multitude which no one can number. Out of all the nations of the earth, they are those who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. We just sit back and hope that's going to happen. No, Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations. God has set a day when he will judge the world in righteousness through the man he has appointed. And that man is coming back, and God has set the day for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. But all through the, the word of God, we are encouraged to pray, come, Lord Jesus. Let me quote Beg again. Somehow, in the economy of God, the prayers of God's people are interwoven into the unfolding of God's purpose. Daniel knew that that God works according to his own plans and timetable, but he does it through his people. 
through the actions and the attitudes of people, through the prayers of his people. And so the knowledge of God's promises to us should stir us to pray rather than we becoming detached from the actions of God. Prayer is rooted in Scripture. Number three, because of the gravity of the darkness around us, we must turn our faces completely to God. I direct your attention now to verse three. I know we haven't even really got into the prayer yet so much, but there's so much here. Look, look at verse three. So I turn to the Lord God. It says in the New International Version, which I'm reading, the English Standard Version, I think, translates it even more accurately for us. It says, so I turned my face to the Lord. I turned my face to the Lord. Now, what, I, what I'm going to do right now is I, I want to begin to talk to you about how we approach God. There's a couple of things I'd like to say about, about this, but this, this phrase, I turned my face to the Lord God, this phrase, I think, addresses a real problem among us today. This phrase, I turned my face to the Lord, takes us out of takes us out of this contemporary, distracted way in which we converse with God. And it takes us into the importance of full, distraction-free communion with God. How many of us have parents have said at one time or another to one of our kids, or all of our kids perhaps, look, look at me when I'm talking to you. You ever use that phrase before? Look at me when I'm talking to you. Perhaps you remember your mom and dad saying that to you. Maybe your mom and dad said that to you yesterday or even this morning. I don't know. But we all understand what that means. Look at me when I'm talking to you. We understand what it means that even though you may be listening or appear to be listening, you're not really paying attention to me when I'm talking to you. So look at me. Turn your face toward me. So Daniel's saying here, I turn my face to God. To turn my face to God means I'm blocking out all other voices. God has my undivided attention. I'm giving my full attention to God. Listen, there are certain things that you can do in life. There's probably many things that you can do in life in which you can multitask. Prayer is not one of them. Daniel is saying, listen, I turn my face to the Lord. I'm, I'm not on my laptop while I'm doing this. I'm not, I'm not responding to texts on my telephone while I'm doing this. I'm not trying to juggle all kinds of trivial things while I'm praying. This is not casual, trivial conversation that is happening here. He deliberately sets his face to the Lord. And verse 3 makes it clear, I think, when he, when he adds, in fasting, and in sackcloth and ashes. In other words, he takes the, a posture, a physical posture here that is conducive to lamenting before God the way he's going to lament when he confesses the sins of the people. Oh, what a, what a, what a practice that is absent from us today. This is clear when he, he fasts. In other words, he's setting aside his food. He's taking the time in which he would normally eat to seek the Lord. Brothers and Sisters in Christ, we are, we are so often distracted today in prayer. There's, all, there's a number of reasons why, and legitimate reasons perhaps, why prayer always gets down to the bottom of the to-do list. Friends, do, do, do we understand the days in which we live, how critical these days are? We, we are witnessing and we are experiencing a baptism across society of an unholy spirit, of idolatry and immorality, under the guise of rights and freedoms. And we, to use the words of the prophet Amos, are at ease in Zion. Internationally, our world is coming apart. We must turn our faces to completely seek the Lord. Let me say one, one more thing about this, this approaching God or how we approach God, which is our next point. Number four, and that is that prayer should be offered with the deepest reverence and awe of God. I thought when Bruce read the scripture to us this morning and he got to verse four, he captured it in the intonation of his voice. Oh Lord, verse four, the great 
and awesome God. The great and awesome God. This seems like a real stupid comment for me to make and for me to em- emphasize, but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, and you can take shots at me if you want. But Daniel addresses God as God. You follow me? Daniel addresses God as God. Let me say this in a frank, frank way, but, but, uh, but I, I'm finding and observing that we don't always do this. It's been my opportunity, my joy perhaps, I could say, to go to other churches from time to time and preach and, and to, to watch other churches online in terms of worship. And I don't want to sound like I'm being critical. Um, but at times I get the impression that sometimes as people lead in prayer, particularly even pastors of churches, as they lead in prayer, that they just want to sound cool and contemporary in what they're saying. There seems to be this casualness in which we talk to God as though God is equal to us, that God is on par with us, that God is just like us. And it's almost completely absent in our praying today to get this sense of the majesty and the holiness of God and the sinfulness of our own hearts being expressed in prayer. I mean, am I wrong to say that the Holy Spirit is grieved when Jesus is spoken to as if he, he were just one of the guys, my buddy. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying, please. I, I know that Jesus is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. I know that in the incarnation, Jesus Christ became one of us. I know, according to the book of Hebrews, that he refers to you and I as his brothers. I know that we have received the spirit, the spirit of sonship. And the spirit of sonship within us, he enables us to cry out to God saying, Father or Abba, Abba. And and I know, I know that Abba is an affectionate word that is probably best translated as Daddy. I get it. But this is speaking of of the affection of our relationship. This is speaking of the intimacy of our relationship with God. This does not give us a license to speak cavalierly about the Lord. Our intimacy with God, that we can call him Daddy, does not mean that we approach God with an improper informality. When when you and I gather together here on a Sunday morning, we gather in Jesus' name. That's important. That means that that when we gather in Jesus' name, something special happens. This is special in terms of place and time. You may think this severe, but but friends, we are are not like a club. We don't don't sit down with God like we do with a friend at Tim's to have a coffee. When we, when we gather in the name of Jesus, this is unlike any other time or place. We are coming, coming to our covenant-keeping God. To put this in Old Testament words, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. To put this in New Testament words, when an unbeliever comes in among us, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, they should by the things we say, and by the way we say them, become convinced that they are sinners, and the secrets of their hearts should be laid bare, and they should fall down and worship God, saying, God is really among you. There's so much more that I could say about this, but I'll leave that for a later time. Daniel gives us an example here. He shows us how prayer is to be offered with reverence and awe of God, knowing that God is holy and we are not. Which takes us to the fifth thing I want to share with you this morning, and that is that prayer must involve confessing our sin. And in doing so, we, which we identify with the people of God. Now, when, da- when Bruce read the passage to us, you, you picked up on it immediately how, how many times Daniel talks about we have sinned, we have done wrong, we have not listened, we have disobeyed, we've not paid attention. 
And he's talking about the sins of God's people. If, if you were to take the time this afternoon and go back and read through this prayer again, and I hope you will, you will notice that there's something that stands out because it isn't there. You know what's not there in this prayer? There is nothing about the sin of Babylon. There's nothing about the sin of the world. Now, it wasn't because that Daniel wasn't unaware of what Babylon had done. He experienced the oppression. He experienced suffering because of what Babylon was doing. And as a servant in the Babylonian court and then later in the Persian court, he was aware of the sinful and oppressive policies of this, of this dictatorship. But he doesn't mention them. It's not a part of his prayer. He doesn't mention the sins and evil of the, of the most evil empire at that period of time. You see, when we pray and we confess our sin, we confess sin, we're to confess the sins personally of, our own, of ourselves and the sins of God's people. That's where the focus has got to be. And, and, and I want to say this. I mention this to you today because for the past two years, in, in many places, and I say this with shame, um, the focus has been on the sins of government. The focus has been on the sins of the, uh, the political and the social agendas of certain movements that we often rightly perceive as undermining the foundations of Canadian society and Canadian culture. And I, I'm reluctant to say this because it's like opening up a can of words, worms, but, but what I want you to see here in Daniel's prayer where his heart really is, where his energy is given. He has a different focus completely than the one I just mentioned. I mean, you can play the, the blame game all you want. And if Daniel was playing the blame game, he, he could have blamed Babylon for everything that happened. Because from his vantage point in his history, it would be true. Babylon invaded Babylon exiled the people of Judah, and Babylon destroyed the city of Jerusalem. They're culpable for all of that, but Daniel doesn't play the blame game. You see, Daniel, as God's prophet and as God's servant, was not committed to fighting the darkness of an antagonistic age in society. Daniel was more concerned about the darkness that lives in the hearts of God's people. And he rightly discerned that all of the calamity that had come upon Judah was their own doing. Verse 5, we have sinned and done wrong. We've been wicked and have rebelled. We've turned away from your commands and laws. We've not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name. Go down to verse 11. Verse 11. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. It's clear that the calamity of these 70 years was because Israel had not listened and obeyed the Lord. And therefore, the curses of the law were justifiably poured out upon them, as it says in the law of Moses. They had not paid attention. They had not really listened to the prophets. Communally, they would have acknowledged the truth of what the prophets were saying, but personally, they disregarded what was being said, and privately, they lived the way they wanted because they had in their hearts, friends, an aversion, an aversion to repentance. You know, it's easy for us to sit back now we, from this vantage point, and we, we, can, we can look back now. It's like This is 2,500 years ago. And we can look back and say, wow. Like it was, it's too bad they were like this. But friends, that, that aversion to repentance is in our hearts today. We don't want to be told that we are sinful. You and I don't want to be told that we've made a mess of our own lives and that we need to repent. 
Can I be so frank as to say that in some way we would really prefer a Joel Olstein kind of Christianity in which I would say to you every Sunday morning, you are a masterpiece. You are the epitome of a dream. You are amazing. Say it to yourself right now. I'm amazing. I'm wonderful. There's no one like me. I am awesome. I'm sure if I preach that, we might actually double our attendance here on a Sunday morning. But we would not have the favor of Almighty God. Brothers and sisters, there is much that we need to repent of. Our prayerlessness, our addiction to social media, our waste of time in social media, of our creeping compromise of the world, of the lowering of our biblical standards so that we can in some way become compatible with the sexual ethics of our world, our persistent insistence on our rights, our grieving of the Holy Spirit, our critical spirits, the bitterness that so many of you harbor in your hearts, our selfishness, our self-centeredness, our love of pleasure more than our love of God, our disobedience to our parents, our toying with the occult practices of the world, our idolatry, having other loves which are more lovable to us than the love of the Lord God himself. Listen, what distinguishes us from the people of the world is not that we are any less wicked. I'm gonna say that again. What distinguishes us as God's people from the people of the world is not that we are any less wicked, but by grace we have seen our wickedness and we have learned to confess it before God. Do you realize that the church is the only community, the only community in the world, the only group in the world that is constantly confessing sin? And where confession does not exist in a church, that church is no longer the church. We know that God's grace has changed us. We know that according to the Bible that sin no longer reigns over us, but we must be honest and acknowledge that sin still remains in us. Martin Luther was right when he, when he wrote about the fact that, that the confession of sin and the repentance toward God. It's not something that we do just at the beginning of our Christian lives when we believe on Christ as Savior and Lord, but that confession and repentance is a daily practice in the Christian experience. When we read a passage like this, there is one other thing that we may object, object to. You see, you and I think of confession of sin as being radically personal, that our relationship with God, the way most of us think, is very individualistic. And what do we see in this passage, though? Daniel says, verse 5, we have sinned. We have been wicked. We have turned away. He uses the personal plural pronoun. We have sinned. He, he, he identifies with God's people. He's identifying with God's people and their sin. Now, when you think about it, um, the Bible doesn't say anything bad about Daniel at all. He, he was taken into captivity as a, as a young teenager, and we know that he led an exemplary life. And so Daniel could have pleaded his, his, his innocence that he wasn't like the other people of Judah. Yeah, I know they sin, Lord, but you know, I, I've, been, I, I've been hanging in there for you. But, that, but that's not what Daniel does. If there was anyone who had any justification in declaring his innocence, it would have been this man. But Daniel says, we have sinned. He identified with God's people. Daniel understood that their sins were his sins too. And you may not have committed this sin, but that sin is still in your heart. And just because Daniel managed by grace to live a blameless life, that did not qualify him to take a pass 
and say I'm different from everyone else. The sins of the church are your sins. The sins of the church are my sins. And in prayer, we must not distance ourselves from God's people. We must identify with them even in our sinfulness. Number six, in prayer, we should plead for God's mercy and desire God's glory. In one sense, in addition to the confession, this is the main thing we see in this passage. With all of the confession that goes on here, there is this shift where Daniel begins to plead for mercy. He starts in verse seven, Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. Verse eight, O Lord, we and our kings, our princes and our fathers are covered with shame. That's, that's a key phrase there, covered with shame. There's that, there's that corporate guilt that Daniel is feeling. Now go to verse, to verse nine. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving even though we have rebelled against him. Go down under verse 15. Now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand, who made for yourself a name that endures to this day, we have sinned. We have done wrong. O Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem. Verse 17, O Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Verse 18, we do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. (coughs) You see, Daniel focuses in on the righteousness of God and the sinfulness of the people. He says, we are covered with shame, but the Lord is covered in righteousness. Therefore, we need mercy. In, In essence, what Daniel is praying here is that we need God to shine into our hearts. He speaks of the desolation of Jerusalem, of the desolation of the the sanctuary, what was there. But remember, the the desolation of those physical objects is only representative of the desolation that was in their own hearts. They need the blessing of Aaron. The Lord will bless you and keep you. The Lord will what? Make his face shine on you and be gracious to you and turn your face toward him and give you his peace. So how does this happen? I mean, how, how can we no longer be covered in shame? How can we, sinful, wayward, rebellious people, have God shine upon us in grace? And friends, as the story of Daniel unfolds, as his writings unfold, he points in the latter part of Daniel 9, he points forward to the ultimate way in which God deals with all of our shame. From verses 24 through 27 in Daniel, we'll look at this next week, he points to the anointed one who put an end to sin, who atones for wickedness, who brings in everlasting righteousness and makes a covenant with his people. One of the old hymns that I perhaps love more than any other is the hymn, Man of Sorrows, What a Name, or sometimes called Hallelujah, What a Savior. Man of Sorrows, What a Name. For the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Notice this plea for mercy here. This plea for mercy and see that it is rooted in a desire that God will be glorified. And so in verse 18, he says, we do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Verse 19, O Lord, listen. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hear and act. (coughs) For your sake, O my God, do not delay. Because your city and your people bear your name. The emphasis on your sake and on your name. Daniel is concerned that God will be glorified ultimately. And this is the end of his praying. And friends, as we begin a new year, as we celebrate 50 years of ministry of the gospel this year, I want you to keep in mind that that God's glory really has nothing to do with whatever we have accomplished during these 50 years. It, It has nothing to do with how many people attend the church or how many ministries we operate as a church, but it has everything to do with God and his glory and the majesty of his name. 
And I conclude very fast with number seven, and that is simply pointing out to you that in ways unknown to us, prayer stirs up the heavenly realms. Because at the end of his prayer, Daniel then hears that Gabriel comes to him in verse 21. Actually, while he is still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I'd seen in the earlier vision, came to me with swift, in swift flight about the time of the evening sac- sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I've now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, an answer was given. Isn't that amazing? In ways that are unknown to us, prayer stirs up the heavenly realms, particular pray- praying of of this, of, this, of this kind, Gabriel, the archangel, is sent immediately. There's angelic activity that happens. And in three weeks' time, when we get to Daniel chapter 10, we're going to come back to this, and we're going to see that when Daniel prays on the earth, something happens in the heavenly realms. To put it in a short line, when prayer goes up, power comes down. Something happens in the heavenly realms when we pray. So to conclude, I just simply say to you, brothers and sisters in Jesus, we are living in critical days. We're surrounded by a Babylonian antagonism toward us and our faith, but we must not lose focus. We have to stay on mission of making disciples for Jesus Christ, and we must never lose sight of our great need to humble ourselves before God, to confess our sins and repent perpetually, to repent from the idolatries of our lives, and to petition God for his mercy to us and to others, and in all of our praying to seek his glory in all things, to live for his glory, and to pray that he will be glorified. Amen. And Lord, we ask now for your help and your strength to do this in our day and age, that you will be glorified through us, through Christ our Lord. Amen. I want to share with you that we have made a decision that we are going to go back to two morning services on March the 6th. It's about five weeks out. And you may wonder why are we waiting so long to do that. Well, we're going to share those things with you over the next couple of weeks because uh, there's a lot to do to get ready for this. So we trust you'll be in prayer with us that our attempts to reopen two services on Sunday morning will be met with God's favor beginning on March the 6th. And may our Lord Jesus Christ and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope encourage you and strengthen you in prayer and in every good deed and word by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.